Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, but this may take, for this may just take place, but in the end it is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on, the, on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, even possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. We are um, walking through the book of Dan. If you're, if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. You know, it's Mother's Day. Some people are here with their moms. I know we have some people. A lot of our people are out with their mothers uh, in church this morning, and it's a, it's a special day. I hope you have a sweet day in the Lord and with your mom. And if your uh, mother's not here, um, pray that you'll be thankful. Spend some time just being thankful for the Lord for your mother and for those mother figures in your life. We are walking through the, the book of Daniel, but we're going to... Uh, we're going to read and review uh, what we talked about last week. We were It was first Sunday, so we had the Lord's Supper, and so it was a little rushed. One of the more difficult passages in all of Scripture to look at, and we had it on an abbreviated Sunday. So I'm going to review real quickly. And if you have other questions, you can see Rodney and Chase and Morgan, and they'll answer your questions. Or if you'd like my manuscript, I'll send it to you. We had a great time in Chris's small group this morning talking about uh, through that text. And some of the small group leaders, they're, they're kind of thinking they're off the hook. Like, oh, I got an out. I don't have to deal with Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, because it's Mother's Day and we're not meeting. Well, that's why I'm looking at Matthew chapter 24. I'm going to tie those two together so you make sure that small group leaders get a chance to, um, uh, 
to teach through that, but it is a, an important part of the Bible because it's a part of the Bible, right? Tell me what part of the Bible is not important. Um, and so, but it is difficult. And um, as we said last week, we really land softly on these things because they're debated. And so any times you have debated things, we, we land softly on them. We're not dogmatic. We're not rigid. We don't have all the answers and have it all worked out perfectly um, because if that was the case, there, there would be so much debate, right? But there's different uh, ideas about how to interpret these passages. But we want to be humble, and but we want to try to be faithful and understand the best we can. Daniel chapter 9. <laughs> think about this text. It is, it is, it is difficult. And you, you, maybe you're thinking, well, how did Jesus understand Daniel chapter 9? If he, did he address these issues in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27? And if he did, or if he or any the apostles would address this, it would be really, really helpful. And, and, and you're, you're right in that conclusion. And, and Jesus did address some of these issues in Matthew chapter 24. That's why we're going to look at that passage today. But what I want to do, and, there, and there's parallel passages as well, the synoptic gospels, they're the, they um, use a lot of the same, uh, they use the same material, and they wrote about the same events, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so there's parallel passages in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. They're also helpful. We'll allude to Luke 21 here in a moment. But let's review. Look at Daniel chapter 9. Verse 24 through 27. And if you remember, Daniel has been praying the, the time of the exile. Daniel is in exile in Babylon. He has been uh, deported in 605 B.C., the first deportation. There were three. Uh, at this point in time, the, the temple has been destroyed. The temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. And the Israelites, the uh, Jews, are in exile and they're in exile because of their rebellion because their lack of uh, faith in the Lord but Daniel is there and he recognizes that this exile period is coming to an end Jeremiah the prophet prophesied 70 years they would be there and so it, the time's kind of coming to an end and so he's praying Daniel's uh, praying to the Lord and confessing sin and asking the Lord to restore uh, the nation restore the city restore the temple and we talked about how we pray and one of the best things we can do is pray scripture because Scripture is God's will. And so we, we ask the Lord to do the things that He says He'll do. And you think, well, that doesn't make sense. That's kind of a waste of time. No, it's not because prayer is a means to an end. That's how God does His work, through the prayers of His saints. And so Daniel's been praying, and God gives him a, a vision of what's to come in the future. What's to come in the future. So let's look at that real quickly before we get to Matthew 24, as Hunter read our teaching text. But it says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And then he lists six things that are going to happen during that 70 weeks period of time. And as we talked about that, it's 490 years. Is that a literal, literal 490 years or is it a symbolic? Is it theological? Well, that's up for debate. But during this time period, six things are going to happen. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. And we said last week that four of those very clearly were fulfilled in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he divides these 490 years into three time periods. The first being seven weeks or 49 years. It says that there's a decree sent out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's in verse 25. 
And he talks about an anointed one. And we said last week that um, that's Cyrus in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22 and 23. We see now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, if you remember, the Babylonians were the world superpower, but they were overtaken as Daniel prophesied, right, in the first uh, seven chapters of Daniel. There's going to be these world superpowers and they're going to one is going to overtake another and that one's going to be overtaken by another and that one's going to be overtaken by another where you have the babylonians and then the persians so during the first year of cyrus king of persia that the word of the lord by the mouth of jeremiah might be fulfilled the lord stirred up the spirit of cyrus king of persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Now, this is a pagan king, and he's, he has um, just taken over the Babylonian Empire, so now you have the Persian Empire, and he's uh, in charge of all these Jews. And he's saying that he's going to send them back to Jerusalem. But not only, Taylor, is he going to send them back, he says, I'm going to build them a house, a temple. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? The Lord stirred in Cyrus, this pagan ruler's heart, to send the, the Jews that he was having dominion over back to Jerusalem and, and to build them a temple. But that's what we see taking place in this first seven weeks. And the second uh, period of time, the 62 weeks, which would be 434 years, we see the temple and the, and the city rebuilt. And that happened, of course, under Ezra and Nehemiah. If you read the Old, Old Testament books, Ezra and Nehemiah, that's what taken place. Cyrus sent them back. They go back to Jerusalem and they build the city and they rebuild the temple. After the 62 weeks... Here in verse 26 is after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Anointed one, who's the anointed one cut off? Well, that's Jesus who made atonement for sin. And who's the people of the prince who's going to destroy the, the city and the sanctuary? Well, that's going to be Titus. So here we have Daniel seeing what's going to be taking place in the future. They're in exile. They're going to be able to return back to Jerusalem. The temple is going to be rebuilt. This is the second temple, right? And after that time of 62 weeks, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, he's going to come to earth, take on flesh. He's going to live 33 years, and he's going to be cut off. He's going to give himself up and be crucified to make atonement for sin. And then... There's going to be a, a prince who's going to destroy the city, and that happened in 70 A.D. The Romans came in and overthrew the Jewish revolt. They were, it was time during the Roman Empire, and the Jews were revolting. They wanted their freedom. And so Titus came in, and he laid siege to the city. It was a time that the Jews had never seen before. It was so terrible. They laid siege to the city, and they burnt the temple, and it was utterly destroyed. And it says one week, the last week there, verse uh, 27, and he shall make a strong covenant. And when I said last week, I believe that's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He makes a strong covenant. That's the, the new covenant. It's prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36. He made a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the weeks he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And he put an end to sacrifice and offering because he became the one 
once for all, sacrifice for sin, as Hebrews tells us. But only that, in 70 AD, when the temple's destroyed, there's no place to make offerings, to make sacrifices. So the old covenant is fulfilled. The question here is, are these 490 years, is it a chronologically precise period of time, or is it theological and symbolic? And I said last week, I believe that's theological, it's symbolic. I argued that the purpose of the 70 weeks prophecy was the 10 jubilee errors that were never observed. If you remember from last week, in the Old Covenant, for 49 years, they're to work their fields, grow their crops, but on the 50th year is a year of jubilee, and they're to let their ground lay fallow. They're also to give the land rest every seven years. It's to give it the land a Sabbath rest. And so they're to work the land for six years, and every seventh year they're to allow the, the land to go fallow. And I propose that this time period is symbolic. This jubilee concept is one in which, if you, if you remember, during the year of jubilee, the the land was given back to the original owners. The debts were erased. All the Jewish slaves were permitted to go free. It was a great time of freedom. I think we see in this jubilee concept, the brokenhearted are bound up, the captives are liberated, and the prisoners are free. I think the fulfillment of these Sabbaths and the jubilee years come in the person of Jesus Christ. The jubilee year in the Old Testament was a type of what's to come. And Jesus has declared himself the jubilee of God. And I think what he's saying, in effect, that the 70 weeks of Daniel has reached their climax and fulfillment in him. Now, when you look at this text, Daniel chapter 9, there's two different schools of thought. One is a preterist school of thought, and P-R-E-T-E-R, preter, is, actually means past. And it teaches that all these events in Daniel chapter 9 are fulfilled in the coming of Christ and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. They would even say that the coming of Christ on the clouds of heaven is also fulfilled. They see that as uh, in 70 A.D. that Jesus came back symbolically in judgment. I don't hold that view, and not many people do, but that's one school of thought, that all of those prophecies of Daniel chapter 9 were, were already fulfilled and were fulfilled completely when the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. There's another school of thought. It's called futurism or dispensationalism. It teaches that the events of Daniel 9 are not, were not fulfilled in 70 AD, but they're all fulfilled in the future, in the end of time, right before Jesus comes back. They have an idea that uh, the prince mentioned here in, in Daniel chapter 9 is actually the Antichrist of the end times. He's, there's going to be a new temple that's going to be built for the Jews where they'll be able to offer sacrifices for three and a half years. And then the Antichrist will turn on them, pour out uh, persecution, tribulation, if you will, before Christ returns. So there's different schools of thought there. And I bring both of these schools of thought together. I bring them up this morning um, because I think that the disciples in Matthew chapter 24 um, were correct in thinking that the destruction of the temple and the end of the ages come together. So turn back with me to uh, toward the end of the New Testament, Matthew 24, and we'll get into our, our teaching text today. I did want to review that to you and say, man, that didn't help me at all. Well, talk to me later and we'll, we'll talk through some of that. I will say this, just kind of a, um, I think it's helpful when we're going through a book and um, 
you, you'll typically know where we're going from week to week. And we're walking through the book of Daniel. Last week I told you, hey, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 24. It's really helpful if you read through that ahead of time and kind of think through it. I know I was talking to Chase. He said he had already been thinking through that. So last week's um, uh, sermon for him made perfect sense. No, he didn't say that actually. But it did make more sense than it did most of you. Because if you just show up saying, well, I don't really know what he's preaching today. I hope it's real good. Sometimes that don't help. Uh, much, especially with an apocalyptic text as we have last week. But Matthew chapter 24, um, what's happen, happening here, right? Let's think about the context of Matthew. Jesus is a long awaited Messiah, foretold by the prophets. He's at this point in time in Matthew 24, he's entered Jerusalem, right? Triumphal entry. It's the last week of Jesus' life. This is probably Tuesday evening, Tuesday during the day, uh, during Passion Week. And think about what's taking place. Jesus has been in the temple teaching. Now, the temple is really, really important. It's a focal point of, of, of Jewish faith. But if you think about the what took place in 586 when the temple was destroyed, why did that happen? Why did the exile take place in the first place? Why, did, why were the Jews deported to Babylon? It's because of their unfaithfulness and their lack of love and lack of trust in God. But then in Jesus' day, what do we see? Jesus here in Matthew 24 is preparing them for another day of destruction. In 70 AD, the, the Roman general Titus is going to lay siege to the, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple is going to be utterly destroyed. Why was it destroyed? Because the attitude of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It was, it was very similar to that of the, the Jews in, in 586. Think about the religious leaders. If you think about the New Testament, they didn't trust God. They trusted in their own righteousness. They trusted in their own rituals, their own ceremonies. The righteousness that God was trying to give them in, in Christ, they didn't need because they had enough righteousness in, of their own. And so as a result of that, God's going to pour out his judgment on the temple in 70 A.D., but Jesus is walking out of the temple, and he sees uh, that the disciples see the temple, and they start talking about uh, how how wonderful and beautiful the temple is, and it was it was a, it was a sight to behold. In fact, some of the some of the rabbis that did that cared nothing about Herod, King Herod, had remodeled the temple uh, in, in those days. But but he did say that you've never seen anything beautiful if you haven't seen Herod's temple. I mean, it was a sight to behold. But look at what takes place here. He's already said, "Your house." In, in chapter twenty-three, verse thirty-eight, he's speaking to the um, disciples. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." And Jesus left the temple and was going away when the disciples came to point out to him the building of the temple. But Jesus answered them, you, you, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the, the disciples are trying to understand what's going to take place. Well, the, the temple is going to be destroyed. And what happened with the disciples when they said, hear Jesus say the temple is going to be destroyed, they assumed because the temple is going to be destroyed, then the, the end times was going to draw near. So they associated the destruction of the temple with the end times return of Christ, and that means that they're going to be able to reign and rule on the earth with him. 
Now that is obvious in the disciples' attitude towards Christ, towards his kingdom. If you recall, on several occasions, the disciples wanted to know who was going to be first in the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 through 21, this is James and John. Their mother asked, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this is James and John's mother, came up to Jesus with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said, say that these two sons of mine are, here, are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your kingdom. And we see that coming up several times in the Gospels. See, the disciples, when they hear about the destruction of the temple that's going to take place a few decades later, they assume that when that happens that, hey, Jesus is going to set up his kingdom and we're going to get to rule and reign with him. But our first point today is the destruction of the temple doesn't mean that the end has come. That's our first point. So there's an erroneous assumption that the temple being destroyed and, and Jesus setting up his kingdom on earth is going to take place. The short of it is this. Jesus is saying instead of reigning with God very soon and, and, and being a part of his kingdom, these disciples here, they're going to suffer greatly. So they need to be ready and they need to persevere. Jesus is telling the disciples, you have no idea what you're about to step into. And if you go into this period of persecution and struggle thinking we're about to have victory and we're going to have a place of prominence and you're going to be utterly disappointed. Notice in verse uh, four, Jesus answers those two questions. Here are the questions. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him and, and said, tell us, when will these things be? Again, what, what, he just talked about the destruction of the temple. When will these things be? When will that happen? And the second question is, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're associating the destruction of the temple with the, the end of the age. Okay? So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to answer those questions, but he's going to answer the second question first. What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Look at verse 5. False Christ will emerge and try to deceive you. So he's answering the second question. What's going to be the signs of the end of the age? False Christ will emerge. The David Koresh's, the Jim Jones, they're going to emerge, and they're going to try to mislead many. Verse 6, what's another sign of the end of the age? Wars and rumors of wars. Wars and rumors of wars will be heard, but the end is not yet. And he makes clear here the destruction of the, the, the Jerusalem and the temple will not mark the end of the age. There's going to be some time before the end. Look at verse 7. What's another sign that the end is, is, is approaching, that Jesus is about to return, right? Verse 7 is natural disasters. But verse 8, look at verse 8. But the end is not yet. And he goes on. What's another sign that the end is coming? Verse 9 through 11. Persecution will be another sign. The church will be persecuted. People will suffer. Things will get worse, not better. And there's some people who propose that as we share the gospel, propagate the gospel throughout the world, that, that things are going to get better on the earth. We don't see that. That's not our experience, right? And that's not what the Bible teaches either. Look at verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, saving faith is not known by some, um, some decision um, it's not 
saving faith is not known by some uh, well-intentioned beginning, but it's by persevering to, to the end. Those that believe will persevere in their faith. It's not somebody walks the aisle, somebody was baptized, somebody joined the church, but those who persevere till the end. That's why we pray for our older folks. Father, help them persevere in their faith, right? Look at verse 14. Another sign that Jesus is about to return is the gospel be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. You think about the Great Commission. When Jesus was resurrected, he appeared before his disciples, and right before he ascended into heaven, he gave them the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So that's another sign that the, the gospel will go out into all the nations. And we pray that, don't we? We, we, we take up money that to send missionaries to the ends of the earth. And we pray, I pray all the time that our children, these, some of these children that they're singing today, and some of our students and some of our, some of our adults will, will want to go to hard places to reach people with the gospel, go to places where the gospel is not preached. And we know that the gospel is still going forth, right? We have people groups here in, in, in our, on the planet that's yet to hear the gospel. So we know that the end is, is, is yet to come. In these last days that Jesus is telling me the signs of the end of the age, he's answering the second question first. What's the signs of the end of the age? And, and, and all these signs. And we see that those are still happening, aren't they? From the destruction of the temple in 70 AD up until the present day, we still see these things occurring. So now that Jesus has answered the disciples' second question he, about the signs of the end, what's it going to look like right before he returns? Now he's going to answer in verse 15 through 28, their first question, when will, when will these things be? Meaning the destruction of the temple. Second thing, second point, we see is God's plan will be accomplished according to the prophets. Look at verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. We looked at Daniel chapter 9. This, ab this abomination of desolation is the destruction of the temple, the second temple in 70 A.D. When's that going to happen? Jesus says, well, it's going to happen in the future, right? And in fact, it happened four decades later. And it's going to be the worst thing that's ever happened to uh, the Jews. But it's going to happen just as the, the prophet foretold. We've seen this, this word, abomination, desolation. We've seen that before in chapter 8. You remember you had the, the Babylonians and they were defeated by the Persians and the Persians were defeated by the who? Shoot, we got to re redo that one. All right, you got the Babylonians, the Persians, Greeks. Yeah, the Greeks, and then the Greeks are going to be overtaken by the Romans who were, who were dominating the world during Jesus' day. But during that Greek period, do you remember there was Antiochus Epiphanes? Do you remember what he did? It was 156 B.C. He, he desecrated the temple. Do you remember? He took a pig and he sacrificed on the altar and he set up a, a, uh, a statue of Zeus it, that looked really familiar. It looked like him, right, in the temple. He desecrated the temple. Yeah, that was terrible. In fact, that was terrible, but then he made you think about 586 too when, when, the, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and the temple was desolated. So you have those two temples being desolated, being made unclean. This abomination that's about to occur, Jesus says, is worse than, than anything you've ever seen. 
And this desolation of the temple that's going to take place here real soon, that's what Daniel, Jesus is saying, that's what Daniel was talking about. So we want to say, Daniel chapter 9, what does Jesus say about this? What does the apostles say about this? Well, Jesus is speaking about those things. Destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that's what Daniel's talking about. The third thing we see, destruction of the temple in 70 AD will have no rivals in regard to destruction. I mentioned that previously. I want to uh, reiterate that. There's going to be a... There's going to be things take place that you've never seen before. Think about this. They'd never heard of these things before. Now, they had heard from their, their ancestors, right, their forefathers about Jerusalem falling in 586, Nebuchadnezzar destroying the city. Deportation, three of them, right? The Jews going to Babylon. They heard stories of the Greek Empire and Antiochus Epiphanes desecrating the temple. And, oh, that was terrible and all the things that took place there. But this event in 70 AD is going to be worse than anything they've ever seen. In Luke's account of this event, Luke chapter 21, verse 20 and 21, he tells it this way. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, what do you do? Get out of Dodge, right? Get out of town. Look at verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Don't go get your necessities. I remember this as a child. I don't remember many things. My wife, was she remembers being born. She remembers all those things. I can't remember. I've got six childhood, childhood memories before I'm 18, right? I don't remember anything. But uh, I do remember this one specific event that's etched in my mind. My... my um, my grandparents, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house in the summer. And, uh, and there was a fire down the street. It was a, a family that we knew lived down the street, the Jacksons. And, um, and we were one of the first ones. We, we had a, uh, my mom and dad call had a big old blue LTD. It was probably like from that wall to that wall. That's how long that joker was. <laughs> and, uh, but we remember we, we got in that blue LT, uh, Ford LTD and we, we drove down to their house and we were one of the first ones to get there. And it's just, it's just, it's just, I mean, flames are already coming out of the windows and it's just gone. And we just kind of stood there and looked. And about time, another car pulled up right behind us. And it was the lady who owned the house. And she started running the house and somebody tackled her because she was like, I got to get my stuff out. I get my stuff out. She didn't have anything but the clothes on her back. And we just had to sit there and watch her and hold her back from going into this burning house. And we saw everything uh, in the house just be gone. If you're on the top of your house, they spend a lot of time on the top of their houses, their flat roofs. If you see the surrounding army coming, don't even go down and grab, try to grab things out of the house. Just get out of there because it's going to be a terrible time. See what else he says. How does he describe it? And let not, verse 18, let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. 
And in fact, look what he says in verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. When Titus laid siege around Jerusalem, Jesus says, if you can get out, you need to get out. When that time comes, it's going to be a terrible time. Eusebius, he was an early church historian. He wrote in the 4th century A.D. He says that the, many of the Christians fled to Pella, which is in Perea, when, this, uh, when the Roman army appeared and began to surround Jerusalem. Josepha tells us that um, there was never a destruction like the destruction of Jerusalem. When they laid siege, they laid siege. And what they did is they wouldn't let anybody in or anybody out. No supplies in, no supplies out. So what does he do? Literally just starves the people to death, right? The siege was so intense. It's Mother's Day, right? It was so in intense that Josephus tells us that the mothers consumed their children for lack of food. It was horrendous. And Jesus wants his disciples to know just how hard it's going to be. The temple was completely destroyed. In fact, when it burned, the gold that melted down from all the ornate parts of the, the temple, it melted down into the rocks. And so the Roman soldiers, to get at the gold, what do they do? They pried up the, the stones to fulfill the prophecy, right? In 24.2, Jesus says, when they're looking, all the disciples are looking at this beautiful temple, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Lastly, we see false Christ will be prevalent, but the second coming of Jesus will be obvious. Jesus returns to that theme of the false Christ. False Christ will show great signs and wonders. They'll perform miracles, and Matthew chapter 7 speaks of that. In fact, we need to be careful um, of always identifying the miraculous with God. Just, just because something miraculous happens, that doesn't mean that God did it. Right? We have an enemy that's powerful as well. Jesus tells us that his coming won't be obscure or ambiguous. Look at verse 27. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. I... I Everybody has your, you know, you, you have a place where you sleep, you know, like I have my side of the bed and Jeannie has hers and I face the, the window on the west side. We live up on a hill on the west side of the, the house and I'm a real light sleeper. I can't go to sleep with, um, I go to sleep really early. I'm a, I'm a early to bed, early to rise. Jeannie's kind of a night owl and she'll want to read. And I guess it's one of our little points of continues like, baby, I need to go to sleep. I'm getting up at like dark 30. But if a light's on, she's like, well, just go to sleep. Well, for some reason, I don't know why I'm messed up, but I can't go to sleep if there's light on in the room. You know, I'm just a really light sleeper. But I'll face that window, and then when there's a storm and there's lightning, guess what happens? Pastor Shane gets woken up, right, in the middle of the night. It just wakes me up because of the light. I just can't sleep when there's light going on. I have to turn over and cover my face up and all that. When it lightning strikes, do we know it? Yeah, you can't hide it. It'll, you know, it's, it's, it's nighttime, and all of a sudden, it lights up. 
the world, right? Yeah, lightning flash, you can see it. That's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. When, when Jesus returns, everybody's going to know it. Not just the elect, not just the church. Everybody's going to know that Jesus returns. Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. That's kind of a odd odd text. What is that? I don't know. You drive down the road, you see a bunch of buzzards, what do you do? What do you feel? What do you do? You see buzzards? You just know there's something. You're like, what, what is it? What are they eating? There's something dead beside the road. Is it a deer? Is it an armadillo? Is it a skunk? What is it? But you know when you see buzzards, they're not just hanging out. They're there because there's something dead. They're eating something, right? Yeah, it's very obvious why the buzzards are there. It's going to be really obvious when Jesus returns. It's not going to be a secret rapture that, that you know, some propose that before the seven-year tribulation, there's going to be a secret rapture that, that only, the, you know, some people are going to know about. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I don't think there's a tribulation that only some have to go through and the church does. And I think you read the scriptures, I think we've been going through tribulation for some time. You talk to the brothers and sisters in China, they'll tell you about tribulation. Or in Sudan, they'll tell you about tribulation. Their husbands being killed and their children being abducted and sold into slavery because they're Christian. I think there's tribulation going on even now. Jesus didn't come secretly. He's not going to come secretly in the end. He's going to come and everybody's going to know it. Again, some preterists, they think that Jesus is going to come back, or Jesus came back in 70 A.D. and kind of secretly in judgment, but I don't think that's what the Scriptures are teaching. The Old Testament prophets, they speak often of the overflow of human kingdoms, and they use cataclysmic events, these metaphors about uh, Stars falling from the sky and, and the heavens being dark. And look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, those days being the end times, all these events, right, from 70 A.D. leading up even to the present time, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Like, Man, what's that all about? We read this and we think, oh, that's got to be something. No one's ever seen that before. That's got to be something in the future that... that has never happened before. But Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9 through 11, we see the prophets using this type of imagery. Behold, and this Isaiah is predicting the fall of Babylon to the Persians. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So you see this, this imagery talking about the, the moon and the stars and the, the sun, everything becoming dark. These events that Jesus is talking about they're 
cataclysmic events, Jesus is going to return and it's going to be like something you've never seen before. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why will they mourn? Why will the, all the peoples, why will they mourn? See, when Jesus comes back, he's, he's not going to come back a, a, a baby in a manger. He's going to come back as a, a judge. Why will they mourn? Because unbelievers will suddenly recognize the consequences of their unbelief. Revelation chapter 6, if you remember our study recently, Revelation 4 and 5, during our study in hermeneutics, we see this picture of the Father and the Son and their their the picture of being a, a judge. And then in chapter 6, there's these seals that are opened up. You have these, Revelation talks about seals and trumpets and bowls. And it's, I think this same event is judgment being poured out and is told in three different ways. But in Revelation 6, 12 through 16, I watched as a lamb broke open the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood. See there that, that imagery is again. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. When Jesus comes back, he comes back in judgment. You're not going to face a baby in a manger. You're going to face the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who's going to judge sinners for not trusting and believing in him. What do we do with all this? You're like, what's the point? Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for what's to come. There's going to be an abomination of desolation when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. He's trying to prepare them for that. And he's trying to encourage them. Persevere in your faith. Even when troubled times come, persevere. But know that the end is not yet. The end is yet to come, right? We're still living in those last days, waiting on Jesus to come back and make all things right. The signs will continue until he returns. The signs are many, the false Christ, wars, natural disasters, persecutions, the going forth of the gospel. So what do we do, church? We need to be watchful. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need to stir one another up towards love and good deeds, and we need to be watchful. What does that look like? What does it mean to be watchful? Jesus is coming back. We need to be watchful. That's something we can talk about in our small groups. I think we understand that to some degree. We need to be faithful. We need to be sharing the gospel, right? We need to be salt and light. We need to be speaking to those who don't know the Lord. What about for the lost? Well, that's easy, isn't it? Now's the time to repent. Jesus is going to return, and he's going to return to judge. And you'll face the Lord who knows every errant thought you've ever had and every selfish deed. And 
I say repent now while mercy can be found, right? If you've never trusted Christ, you need to know that Jesus lived for you and he died for you and he died a terrible death, suffering the wrath that sinners deserve and he was buried and on the third day he rose from the grave and he showed himself right his scarred hands and feet and he showed himself to disciples and he ascended into heaven but one day he said i'm going to come back i'm going to gather my church to myself all those who have repented and trusted christ we're going to be with the lord isn't that awesome that's what our hope is we look forward to being with the lord but for those who are not in christ who are separated from the lord you'll be judged for all of your sin not just a a, a real quick one-time event but you'll be judged for all eternity and that's what you deserve because that's what we all deserve, right? God's no respecter of persons. He judges sin. For us believers, we need to be thankful for Jesus who bore our punishment for us. But for the lost, you need to repent so you can have your sin debt removed. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. We're going to sing a song. The children are going to help us couple other things we need to persevere in our faith right you don't just say you're a believer and 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 ride off in the sunset and do what you want to do no believers persevere in their faith another maybe application is we need to expect difficulty expect deceivers expect those will come and try to deceive us but let's pray father we do acknowledge that you are good we're thankful for your word, and we do have a hard time with this text, these apocalyptic texts, Father, and we want to understand it, and we want to be faithful as a result. We are thankful that you know all things, you're omniscient, you see all things, and you were able to see into the future, and, and you were able to warn those disciples of the coming judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD, and you tell us that you're coming back, and no one knows but the Father, but we want to live expectantly, watchful lives, faithful lives. And we ask you to give us the grace to do that this week, that we would be as a church, as a whole, we would be faithful and watchful. And Father, for those that are here that are yet to repent, maybe there's one here, maybe they're a child or a student or an adult, they've yet to repent, they've yet to trust Christ. I pray that you allow them to hear the, the gospel in ringing loud in their ears all day as they're spending time with their mothers. Just allow that gospel to ring loud in their ears. And Father, may you bring conviction of their heart over their sin, their rebellion. And Father, may you open their eyes to see how good you are and how merciful and wonderful you are. And Father, may they want to know you more than anything in life. Father, grant repentance today for those who are lost. Father, we're thankful for the hope we have in Christ. We know it's by your mercy that we're saved. Father, we ask you to help us live righteous lives. And, and Father, for our sick, we have some who are, are, are sick. I know Mr. Kidd is, is recovering from hip surgery and surgery on an arm. And Father, we pray for Miss Fran Elishman as she's recovering. We ask for grace on her. And Father, for Mr. Glenn and Miss Edna, for Mr. Glenn, we ask for a good day. God, Father, that you would just take the fluid off his lungs and you would give him a, a hopeful day in you. And for Miss Edna to have a, a good day, a Mother's Day in you as well. Help them to trust you despite the sickness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.